0: This is the Unraveled podcast with hosts Caleb Baring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Baring. I'm
1: Nicole Richards.
0: And you're listening to Unraveled. In last week's episode, we had the opportunity to talk about the confessions of Carl and Tommy and hold them up against what we had learned from Jim Trainum, and try and get an idea of whether or not they were good, solid, reliable confessions. Now, so far, it's tough to see that they're measuring up well with the facts that the police had at the time of the confessions. But there was time after these confessions where the police could do investigation and find out more to try and determine whether or not these were reliable confessions. So today we're going to talk about what happened after the confessions were taken. But first, we want to take a minute and revisit the issue of Odell Titsworth. We've realized, um, looking into it some more since the last episode, that it actually goes a lot deeper uh, than what we mentioned. So, Nicole, why don't you tell us more about what happened when the police went and found Odell Titsworth?
1: Sure. So we had mentioned in the tape that he was eventually found incapable of committing these crimes with Tommy and Carl. But as you have said, it, it is a bit more complicated, and that's why I feel it's great that we revisit it. So, yes, we had brought up that he was brought in He was questioned by the detectives initially. There is no interrogation tapes of those. Um, He wouldn't confess. He wouldn't say that he was involved with any of this. But the big thing that was going on when he was brought in for this question is that Detective Baskin... Now, we have to remember, Detective Baskin is the detective who was brought out to McAnally's. He was there. He saw the original crime scene. He He was
0: the first one on the crime scene, the one who allowed... um the manager to clean things Absolutely, up. Absolutely, yes. That's who So we're he
1: remembers about. that night very well. The night of Denise's disappearance is, is very clear in his memory. And so, as this is unraveling and as this story is being told and these confession tapes are coming out and Odell Titsworth's name comes to the surface, it's not sitting right with Detective Baskin because. What he remembers of that night that Denise goes missing is that earlier in that evening, it was a Saturday, he remembers why he was working that night. And earlier in that night, he had been at the local hospital getting statements from the staff there. And the reason he was doing that is there had been an altercation at the hospital between police officers and Odell Titsworth that resulted in Odell's arm being broken by the police. And that this altercation had happened two days before Denise went missing. So Detective Baskin has been sitting on this, and he finally goes to Captain Dennis Smith and Gary Rogers, and he tells them what had happened. So Detective Baskin had been sitting on this information. He also was not present for these interrogations of Carl and Tommy, which is another huge part, because had he been present for these, he would have known as soon as Odell's name came up, oh, wait a second... Something else happened that night.
0: Something's not right here.
1: Absolutely. So with this information, Dennis Smith goes to the physician who set Odell's arm and talks to him about Odell's injuries. And this doctor states that there is no way, given the extent of his injuries, that he could have taken part in what was what happened this night That to Denise.
0: There's no way that he could have taken part of it or no way that he could have done the things that that Tommy and Carl said he did as the ringleader.
1: There's no way he could have done the things that Tommy and Carl said he did as a ringleader. And he also has an alibi, right? So it's not only that, but he also was home. There were other people in the house with him. He has an alibi. He has this broken arm. These, I mean, this arm had just been broken two days before. So he is kind of airtight at this point. You know, there isn't... But Detective Smith is determined, and he goes on to then gather eight mugshots, one of which is a picture of Odell, and he brings them to Carl Fontenot and asks him to pick out Odell.
0: And just just to to jump back to what we talked about last week, you know, I mentioned that it doesn't even seem to me like Carl Fontenot's ever met Odell Titsworth. You know, they asked if he had any distinguishing marks or scars or tattoos, and Carl said he didn't have any, but... In fact, Odell Titsworth, his arms are covered in tattoos and his legs are covered in tattoos. So I'm really curious to hear more about what happened when the police brought pictures to Carl.
1: Well, it goes very much as we would expect. They start with eight. He can't pick them out. They bring that number down to six. They can't. He can't pick them out. They whittle it down to two mugshots, one of Odell and one of another person. And again... He can't pick him out. And so at this point, finally, but very, very reluctantly, um, the detectives agree that Odell is telling the truth. But the big thing here is that, and why we wanted to revisit it, is that this information is never made public. So Odell's name has already been put out to the, to the media as this ringleader and that there are confession tapes from both Tommy and Carl, the public has all of this information. This very small town of Ada has this information that these three individuals are being held. They are responsible for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Denise Haraway. And this information that clears Odell's name, that information never makes it to the press. And actually, Odell is kept in police custody. He's kept in police custody for what will end up being over 20 days. And they end up holding him for an outstanding warrant, but none of that information is made public. We have to start to bring in that this becomes a very outspoken case. There's lots of rumors. It's a very, very small town. Um,
0: And what the public is seeing is that There are two confessions, both of which are naming Odell Titsworth. At the same time, Odell Titsworth is in jail. It turns out for a warrant that's completely unrelated, but the public isn't made aware of that. So uh, what it really looks like from the outside is that all three of these guys are in prison and, and probably that the police have some sort of evidence besides these, what seem to be not adding up very well, these confessions.
1: Yeah, and that that's also playing on the fact that Odell has a long reputation with the police. Um, Tommy Ward's family has another reputation in town. You know, the the town sees it as like, yes, they have decided that they have gotten these these people and that they are guilty, and that's all kind of been decided before, you know, any charges le- are filed, no, let alone
0: a, a pleading, right? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. So, um. The other part is that that I find really that was a was a confusing bit for me is that Odell has found that he is not involved and with Odell not being involved this leaves this major gap in this story which is this truck right. Where did they get their hands on a truck if they don't have Odell's truck? Well Odell doesn't have a truck but his sister has a truck and the police actually go and sees Odell's sister's truck. They hold it for over a week. Based on what? They tell the family that it's connected to a drug charge. They search it, they flip that truck over, they search it for fingerprints, they return this truck to the Titsworth family, it's a mess, it's been looked over and dusted for fingerprints. And why they did that, we have no idea. Especially if Odell has been found to not be involved, then why, after this, go and seize his sister's truck? It's like these grasping, because this this fact is is that if there's no Odell, there's no truck, and now we have an even bigger problem on our hands.
0: And, and frankly, at least in my view, if there's no Odell, we're just counting more and more and more things in these confessions that don't add up, that aren't, you know, uh, the things that that Jim Traynham says to look for, these things that are reliable, these things that corroborate what is said. So here's a a huge one where both of them are like, yeah, Odell is the ringleader, and there's no way he could have been there. Plus, now there's no truck.
1: Right, and I think that what it also shows us is the absolute power of confession tapes. And that is scary because it's if we go by Jim Trainum who is a seasoned detective who has gone on to dedicate his work to talking about false confessions, he gave us some some really fascinating information about the top interrogation schools in our country who say Yes, we, these are not good tactics to use. Yes, it is not reliable information that we're getting, but we still use them if we know that. So we know that about these confession tapes, yet that when the entire case is falling apart around us, we still have these confession tapes and it's enough to keep people in custody and it's mm. enough to move forward and start to work towards placing formal charges on them.
0: So let's take a look at what else happened in their investigation after these confessions were taken. Before we get on with the rest of the episode, I want to take a quick moment for a word from our sponsor, which is me, or more specifically, the law office of Caleb Arang. You know how some solo attorneys struggle with keeping a steady flow of clients coming into their office? Well, I help attorneys to pack their practice with clients so they can spend time working on cases instead of stressing out about paying the bills. And for the next three months, I have a goal of giving away... 90 free solo success strategy sessions over the next 90 days so if that's something that you would be interested in for your practice please reach out to us and we'll get that set up you can email at unraveledpod at gmail.com and just mention that you're interested in a solo success strategy session with me kayla barring
1: So, the next thing that comes up that was really interesting that happens is that the detectives, during their investigation post confession tapes, they are able to locate the two women who allegedly saw Tommy Ward return to this party crying and upset and confessing to the killing of a woman. Now, we have to go back and think this was the two women that Jeff Miller went into the police station and said, I met these two women. They told me that they were at this party and Tommy Ward came in. He was crying and upset. He had gone in this truck and abducted and raped and killed this woman. And the whole story was that Jeff Miller shared was based on the information these two women gave. So These two women, once they are contacted and found finally by detectives, they deny having even been president this party. And never mind, they totally deny telling Jeff Miller this story. So again, this was the catalyst that sort of sent the police and the detectives on their way to Tommy Ward. This was the bit of information. Jeff Miller, the case had gone cold. They had no information. Jeff Miller comes in off the street one day to the police station and just sort of drops this bomb. That sends them to Tommy Ward.
0: But they don't find these two women until after they've gotten these confessions. Post confession tapes. Yeah. So it really seems like, you know, if I'm one of the police officers in this case, that my thought would be well, this story was a lie, but it still got us to the right person. So, who cares, right?
1: Yeah, and that's basically what happened. I just find it very interesting because I think what I, what the thing that happens for me, and because I'm on the, I don't have the tunnel vision of this case, the way I see it is what then is Jeff Miller's deal? Now I would think I need to go back and revisit Jeff Miller because if these two women are saying, we never told him that we weren't even at this party, then why would what strikes an individual to go into a police station and disclose the name of an individual and say, hey, this is the person who killed this woman?
0: Well, and we have a missing truck, and it sounds like if you are believing these confession tapes, you also have a missing third person. So, is Jeff Miller ever looked into? Does Jeff Miller own a truck? Was he at that party? You know, um, those are the questions that pop up for me. And, And, yeah, like you said, going back and talking to him and finding out, you know, what happened that led him to walk into the police station and apparently tell these lies?
1: I mean, that's a huge thing, right? To walk in and decide that you're going to go and give the police this person's name. And not only that, but where he's living. They He knew where Tommy was staying at that time. He knew that he could be... I mean, he just... I almost am curious, which is information we can't seem to find. Maybe we could, we could do a little bit more... Um, in talking to Tommy about this, but is what, does, does Tommy know who Jeff Miller is? Was it somebody that he was friendly with? Is it somebody they had a falling out? Is it somebody that was an enemy of Tommy's? I mean, the idea that he could go in and drop this bit of information that is later debunked, and that feels like something worth looking into. Okay,
0: so, so here we are, doing this investigation after the confessions are made we've got this debunked statement from jeff miller but i guess it doesn't really matter because we've got these confessions so let's look at the actual content of these confessions and what's happening afterwards that in this investigation to to try and show that these confessions are in any way true
1: well, the biggest thing that they are doing is the detectives realize at this point that the case is problematic, right? Let's, we can't go and say that they were completely in the dark about this. They, everything points to that they start to see, okay... Just like you and I are talking about, that this case has got some problems, right? We've lost Odell. We've lost the truck. We don't have any physical evidence.
0: There's no fingerprints. There's prints. no
1: fingerprints. There's no body. There's no weapon. There's no nothing. And so we're holding these individuals now. They, and they are, haven't
0: been charged yet. They right? have not
1: been charged. So one week out, they are still in jail. They have had their first hearing, which has been moved to the jail the actual hearing was held at the jail instead of the courthouse because there were so many death threats against these individuals that the the system was afraid to actually transport them to the courthouse in fear that something would happen to them so they moved the the um, first hearing to the jail they had this first hearing and the judge says that they are being held in connection to the Haraway case no formal charges are made um, arraignments are delayed again, and they're a week in with no charges. At that same time during that first week, the medical examiner's office announces that the bones that were originally found in this charred house in their initial search have been found not to be human. So this one bit that they were like, well, let's see what happens with this. That's not, that's no good. And they're one week out, no charges, no ev- evidence, and the police are just on this mad, mad search to be able to kind of find something, something to, to really pin these individuals to this, this murder.
0: So I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that these confessions are true, that Tommy and Carl, in fact, did these things. They say they did. They committed this murder. And I'm a cop. I don't have any other evidence besides these confessions. But in these confessions, it tells me, we we took her to this house that we then burned down. It was near a power plant. So, and it sounds like, you know, we talked in Carl's confession about how they, they gave him leading questions about where this power plant was. So did they go there and look for this burned down house?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where the police are searching. The police are searching in all the places that Tommy and Carl Both have identified as places where they dumped her body. Mind you, on a side note, they are different places. Tommy and Carl's confessions do not match as to where they dumped her body. But one of the places is the power plant, and that is where they go out. And so an interesting thing happens when they're out at the power plant. So there's about 200 acres out there that is owned by one individual named Forrest Simpson. And part of the 200 acres includes this power plant. So he is told by people, he doesn't live in the area and he's told by people that police are out searching his land. They um, are specifically around the remains of this burned down house that's out there. So since and that's
0: actually, so they found a burned down they house. They find a
1: charred house on his property. So
0: that sounds, I promising. Mean, that sounds a lot like what right. Carl said in his confession. Right.
1: And to give detectives credit, I mean, they, if I had gotten a confession and said, hey, I brought her out to this house at the power plant and we put her body in there, we burned it down and I go out there and there's a burned down house on this property. Of course, I think that we are right Right where we're supposed to and be, and
0: you're gonna find some sort of remains, yeah, some dental fillings, or
1: something. That this is this is where we need to be. Like we are on to something, and so Simpson goes out there and he talks with the police, and they tell him all about this confession and how they brought this woman out to this abandoned house and they burned it down with her body inside of it. Mm-hmm. So he, the police are telling him. We know who uh, burned down this building on your property. And not only did they burn it down, but they They put a body inside of it. Yes. So Simpson knows about the case, obviously. Very small town. This is a widely public case. And he confirms that the disappearance was last April. The cops say yes. That's exactly when it was. Well, then Simpson goes on to say, well, that's completely impossible because He himself had actually burned the house down in June of 1983, which is 10 months before Denise even disappeared.
0: So this house was already burned down. There's no way that it's the same one that Carl is talking about in this confession.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just it just kind of blows the top off of it again. It's like, all right, we've got this thing and then here he is and he says, "No, that's impossible" because I'm actually the person who burned it down. Um
0: were there any
1: other houses maybe on that property it could have been? Not that we know about. Like not at all, you know. Um this is this that, was that's it. The house, this was it. This is the house.
0: And it was burned down long before Denise was there, which by was, the
1: owner of the property,
0: which makes Carl's confession even more suspect because there was no house there for him to burn down.
1: Yeah. They still are on the search for this body. And so Well, they they also have
0: Tommy's confession which like you said has a different that the body was put and do they look there are they able to find a body based on tommy's confession
1: no the detectives have searched everywhere and they went to the bunker which is where they talked about in the other confession and tommy's confession
0: they still have tommy and carl though and it sounds like they're there they're in custody um why aren't the police using them to try and find out where the body is since uh, apparently Tommy and Carl are the two people who would know.
1: Well, I think that's exactly what the detectives finally get pushed to do. And they think, okay, they are at this point where it's been six months since Denise disappeared. And the detectives feel like Carl and Tommy are the only people who are going to be able to really lead them to Denise's Body, Which I think is also this moment that really shows us how deeply in tunnel vision you can get. Because things are happening, yet they believe still, six months since her disappearance, they believe Carl and Tommy are the two who are going to really lead them to Denise's body. And so they pull this stunt at one point where they get this idea, these detectives get an idea that they're going to go see Tommy Ward at the jail. And Detective Baskin is carrying this big plastic garbage bag. And they confront Tommy. Um, The detectives reach into this bag and pull out a skull, a femur, another piece of bone. They imply, now they imply, that these were Denise Haraway's. And they say to Tommy that you need to tell us where the rest of her bones are so that her family can bury her. And Tommy at this point says... I have no idea what you're talking about. I had no part in this. If those are her bones, I'm sorry. But I don't know where you found those. And I don't know where anything else is because I had nothing to do with this. And he refuses to crack under this pressure. And I mean, we're talking about the pressure of detectives being in your face while you've been held in jail now for a while. Also should be noted, he has been held in a solitary confinement cell. He is being shown body, the human bones, and saying, these belong to this woman that you murdered, and you need to tell us where the rest of her bones are so that her family can bury her. And he doesn't crack.
0: So, they're going to these really pretty extreme and maybe even inappropriate lengths to try and find out where this body is. And and Tommy and Carl aren't saying anything um and at this point you know do they stand behind their confessions because it sounds like they don't I mean Tommy's saying I don't know anything about it I didn't do it even though the cops are have this you know taped confession
1: no I mean they retracted their confessions almost immediately after making them You know, the police went to the media the day after the confessions were made. They said, we have these confessions, this is what happened. What didn't make it to the media is that they almost immediately retracted those confessions. Um, What also didn't make it to the media was that Odell had been taken out of the equation. You know, all of these pieces that don't go public, the only thing that's still out in the public is we have these individuals. They are being held in connection to her murder, and we are... Continuously looking for her body. That's it. And so, you know, they're being held in custody and nothing really, nothing has happened. You know, nothing other than they have claimed their innocence and they maintained claiming their innocence during this whole process.
0: So they're continuing to maintain their innocence so far Not only is everything that the police have investigated after the confessions not adding up, but what led them to Tommy in the first place is now gone as well. So, you also mentioned that they have not yet been charged. So what happens? Do they let them go because they don't have evidence?
1: No, so what now we have to start looking at is that they have to start preparing for what is ahead of them. And that is going to be getting finally, finally, getting legal counsel. So Tommy Ward's family is on the hunt, his sister and some other members are on the hunt, his mother, they are on the hunt looking for legal counsel. The feel within the city of Ada is that there are attorneys that are very vocal, public defenders that are very vocal and saying we will not, if I am assigned this case, I will quit the bar. There People are refusing to take this this case, and private attorneys are refusing to take it. They don't want any part of it. Nobody wants to touch it because we have to remember that Denise was married to a husband who is from a very prominent family in Ada. Um, She was respected in the community, and we have these confession tapes. We have these people who are sort of considered, quote, you know, low-life individuals, and The law community of Ada doesn't want to touch it. Nobody wants to touch it. The Ward family is working towards it, and they are pulling all their resources. And I think this is a, you know, this is this thing where we have to remember how pervasive of an issue this is, is that if you are poor, if you do not have resources, then your ability to get legal counsel, just how difficult that is. I mean, I think that this is a larger conversation around, you know, these kinds of things. But it definitely shows up in this case.
0: So Tommy's family is out looking for counsel for him, and they're having a lot of trouble because no one wants to take the case, do they eventually find an attorney for him?
1: They do. They find um, a gentleman by the name of Don Wyatt.
0: Okay. And what does Don Wyatt do? He's got this client sitting in jail without any charges.
1: So the first thing that he does, so he gets he gets approached by the family. He's not sure at first. He, he doesn't agree to take the case until he is able to meet with Tommy a few times. So he meets with Tommy a few times. He has, you know, been on record as saying he didn't really, he wasn't convinced that he was innocent when after he had talked to Tommy. But he was willing to take it and kind of see where this went and see if he could kind of pull this apart. And so the first thing that he does is he files a writ of habeas corpus. And at this point, the suspects have been in jail for 11 days. There's no charges. And so this this bit that's filed is basically pushing the DA's office to say, you have to either set formal charges or you have to set them free. And it's body or no body. You have to either get these charges or you have to let them out. They've been in custody for 11 days with no, no formal charges.
0: And it seems like what they really wanted during those 11 days was to find a body so that they could have. That's exactly what they're
1: doing. And so the DA's office pushes them again And pushes Don Wyatt's office and says, you know, kind of comes up with a reason of why they don't need to be released, why they can't be released and yet why charges can't be filed. The courts don't go for it. So finally, on November 7th, now this is 20 days after they've been arrested, Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot are formally charged with robbery with a dangerous weapon, kidnapping, rape, and murder in the first degree of Denise Haraway. And all this is done with absolutely out a slice of physical evidence, only with these two confession tapes. And so the next day in the Ada News, these charges are announced. It says two men are charged in the Haraway case. Now, mind you briefly, Odell Titsworth is also still in jail at this point. He's not been charged charged along with Tommy and Carl. And the district attorney's office goes on to great lengths to explain to the public why. Because the public at this point believes that all three of these individuals. So this is the first time, finally, 20 days out, the the um, there is a statement made that says why Odell is no longer... Being held in connection to this case. And they release a very thought out bit of information that talks about how he's been eliminated as as a suspect. Doesn't go into exactly why, but it kind of talks this. This is the first moment where the public gets the bit of information saying, okay, he's no longer involved in this. So you've got these charges. These are huge, hefty charges, right? We've got robbery with a dangerous weapon, kidnapping, rape in the first degree, and murder in the first degree. And the, and then the charges are made. And then the very next day, a short bill of particulars was added to the charges. And so they've added more information. This is the district's attorney's office has added more to these charges, saying, one, that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, That, two, the murder was committed for the purpose of avoiding or preventing a lawful arrest or prosecution. And, three, there existed a probability that the defendants would commit criminal acts of violence that would constitute a continuing threat to society.
0: And... Was there a reason that they would add that on top of the fact that they had already filed charges?
1: Huge charges, but the purpose of this list of aggravating circumstances was because under Oklahoma law, it would permit the district attorney's office to seek the death penalty.
0: Okay, so now not only are they being charged, but they're being charged and the intention is that they would get the death penalty if they're found guilty.
1: Yeah. So they come out with these formal charges and then the next day they come out and they say, well, guess what? We're going to add these be- these more aggravating circumstances because not only are we going to go for guilty verdicts here, but we want to be able to try this as a death penalty case because in Oklahoma, there was the potential for that. So I want to reiterate that all of these charges were filed, then these aggravated circumstances are filed that are now making this a death penalty case, and all of this is done with no physical evidence, and no body. So we don't have anything yet
0: except the confessions.
1: Except the confessions, and these two are now up against the, the death, death penalty. penalty. They yeah. could,
0: you know, this is now life or death for Tommy and Carl, proving whether or not these confessions are true. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and so you have moving forward. The next day now, November 8th, Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot, they appear in court um, to plead to their charges. Uh, Tommy is accompanied by an attorney from Wyatt in Atticop, and he pleads not guilty on all accounts. Carl Fontenot still at this point has no attorney. He does not plead, and pending the appointment of an attorney that will be given to him by the court and both men are ordered to be held without bail. So Don Wyatt goes on to try to get Tommy Ward out on bail. And it's not really going well. The bail hearing that was held on November 15th, um, he's denied bail. And But the the bit of information here that I find to be really, really useful is though he's denied bail, this is the first time that an attorney is given gives a public statement on behalf of Tommy Ward. This and is
0: really the first time anyone makes a public statement for, yeah. on behalf of Tommy Ward, right?
1: Right, and this is the first time that they have had a chance to even on November 8th when they go in to appear in court and plead to their charges, this is the first time that the public is finally going to hear from them because because no charges had been made, they were silent on it. They weren't able to plead not guilty. They weren't able to say anything. So they've been, able, they've been held. Now they've finally been charged. They've been charged. It's now a death penalty case, but this is also the first moment that Tommy gets to go in and plead not guilty. And though Carl doesn't get to do that yet because he's waiting on an attorney, it's still his opportunity to at least appear in court um, yes, of course, they're denied bail. We knew that would happen, but on, but it is also the moment where somebody finally says something. And so Don Wyatt is on record as saying that there, at the time of this hearing, that there has been nobody in existence, and no evidence has been produced indicating a crime has even been con- committed. He goes on to explain that Ward is being held solely on his recounting of a dream, which the prosecution is calling a confession. Now, that was told to a reporter for the newspaper, and it was the first mention of this, quote, dream in connection to the Haraway case.
0: So So it's the first time that someone has noted that this was a dream that he was talking about and not a confession.
1: Yes. So it's the first time we have it and we can see that, it was said, of course, the police never mentioned it to the media, and even the reporter writing this story doesn't actually go on to talk about it or doesn't press the issue or is kind of given that bit of, of information and doesn't go anywhere with it. But on record, it's the first time that somebody has said, not only is there no evidence and no body, and, but... This confession tape that they have is not, in fact, a confession tape. It is an individual talking about a dream he had. And so it's a huge moment for us because it's a moment that says, okay, this is the first thing that went public. Nobody did anything with it, but it's the first time we see that, like, somebody finally says something. Finally,
0: someone is bringing up this this fact that they said it was a dream, which would, to me, make sense why nothing in it is proving to be true.
1: Yeah, and it's the first time that somebody is saying something directly in connection to these confession tapes. Because the thing is, is the confession tapes are what is everybody is basing the case off of. Like, we don't have to do any more police work. Sure, it would be great if we found a body. But you know what? At the end of the day, we have confession tapes. Where this is the first time somebody says these confession tapes might not be all that you think they are. These confession tapes are problematic, you know? Maybe yeah. maybe nobody took that and ran, but at least it's that moment where it's first talked about.
0: So they, they've they finally been charged. They got their chance for a bail hearing, even though, as one might suspect, it didn't go well for Tommy and Carl. They're not going to get out. Um, so I think what we should do in our next episode is... Talk about what happens in those trials. You know, did they get any more evidence before the trial? And and what else is brought out? And and what's the result of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot happens. I mean, obviously going into this, we now have these two individuals. They're looking at a death penalty case. It's, there's confession tapes. There's no evidence. I mean, the lot could happen. But yeah, the trials move forward. And I think listeners should be excited to hear how those, play out I think a lot of surprises show up in it I think that things don't go quite the way you might think they do and again it's it's where this can story continues to unfold in a way that is remarkable as to how we ended up where we eventually ended up
0: and so we'll be going into that really in depth in next week's episode
1: yeah next week the trials
0: So, Nicole, I think it's been really interesting doing this podcast with you and really delving into this case.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's been a great way to really take a case that I know we were both interested in, but really kind of flesh out details and really get to the bottom of of what makes this story so fascinating to us.
0: And, you know, when we first talked about taking on this podcast, we talked about wanting to do a different case every season. And I still feel like that is a great idea. And, you know, as we're coming up on the trial of of Tommy and Carl, I know that season one will eventually come to an end and we'll be in a place to start looking at a season two.
1: That's exciting. I think that I look forward to doing as many of these cases as we can because I think the more information that gets out... That shows the flaws within our our judicial system and our way of doing police work. I think the better.
0: Absolutely. So here is what we want from you, the listeners. If you know about a case that you think that we should cover, let us know. And ideally, we would be looking for a case that you are somehow personally involved, whether it's a friend or a family member. Uh, but it's really helpful to us if we can. Get documents for the case and get in touch with people who know or had anything to do with the case we really wanted to do a lot more of that with this season and this case and it, and it was just a real struggle for us to uh, get people who would talk to us or even to get all of the information that we wanted to get um, so if you have information about a case Uh, that you can provide and you want us to cover it on the next season uh, reach out to us email us uh, unraveledpod at gmail.com
1: yeah let us know about the case how you're connected what you feel is the crux of the case what do you why would it be a good case for us to unravel and we'll go from there
0: Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.